Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer supplication. And thank you all for being here and being willing and eager to uh, dig into God's Word. And let me, on that, invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bible to 1 Peter. I'm preaching a series of messages through the first epistle of the Apostle Peter, Simon Peter. Um, and uh, today we're still in chapter 1. We'll be in chapter 1 for a little while. But to, anyway, we're, we're gradually making progress. And so let me invite you to direct your attention to chapter 1, 1 Peter. And, um, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 3. And uh, we'll settle down on uh, verses 5 and through 12. But uh, read along with me silently as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if, you, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Would you bow your heads with me? And I just want to ask the Lord to Bless the reading and the preaching of his word and also the absorption of his word by those who hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We give you praise and honor and glory. We think about, Lord, how gracious and kind you are. And Lord, today we thank you for your word. It indeed is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. And Lord, we thank you that you speak to us so vividly through these ancient writings that are divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. We thank you for the Apostle Simon Peter, for his life, for his testimony, for his example, and now for these timeless, eternal words that he wrote to Christians in the first century, but yet certainly are applicable to us in the 21st century. Lord, there are needs on our hearts that only your word can attend to. I pray that you will take the word as it is read, as it's preached today. Let it come alive in the hearts of those who hear and may it transform our lives. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I know you've heard me speak of my mother a lot, uh, which I'm, I'm very proud to, to do. Um, 
this Thursday, the 6th, which happens to be my birthday, is the anniversary of her home going. She went home to be with the Lord. Uh, it'll be seven years this Thursday. And so naturally that October 6th has some of a wide variety of emotions for me. As, uh, I, as I get older, I don't want to get too excited about celebrating birthdays. But in addition to that, you know, I have just a wide range of emotions as I think about my mother. I miss her terribly and certainly continue to grieve. But also as I think about her, uh, I, I am so blessed to have grown up in a home with a godly Christian mother, uh, a mother of 11, for those of you that are new to Cornerstone. Um, and um, you've heard the old song, Ten Little Indians, where she had 11. She had, didn't stop there. Nobody told her. But anyway, a, as a mother of 11 children, you know, and of course we were growing up on a farm, uh, you know, she was a stay-at-home mom, no surprise. Uh, and uh, a, a big portion of her time, in addition to doing lots of hard uh, housework and, and uh, helping us with homework and, of course, helping my dad on the farm and attending to different things that would happen, my mother was a teacher. I don't mean formally out in the school, but she was a teacher. She was a very wise woman, and I mean that in terms of godly wisdom that God had, had bestowed on her through her diligent search of the Word of God. And, and so she would never hesitate to impart to us truths from God's Word without preaching. She didn't stand, you know, in the kitchen on a chair and, and all of us be sitting around and preach. It, she had an ingenious way of weaving into the fabric of every day biblical truths that, uh, that, you know, with illustrations. She was sometimes very humorous and sometimes it would just grip your heart and you almost want to cry. But, but she could make these lessons as she dealt with all the variety of crises that would erupt in our household, as you can imagine, with 11 kids. And, and so as I, as I think about her, and, and you know, uh, she, was, she was stricken with a terrible disease um, that uh, was, uh, you've heard of Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. It's an incurable disease. It attacks the nerves. And so I thought the marvel of my mother's life, one of the greatest inspirations about her to me, as I watched her as she coped with this incurable disease, was even when the, the disease would attack the nerves of her body, which it does. And for her, it attacked all the nerves in the area of her throat and beyond, so she began to lose the ability to eat, to swallow. And, and, but, but probably the hardest thing for her to lose was her ability to speak. And of course, we began to miss her conversation uh, in our phone calls and in our visits. And when we, were, we did phone conference calls as a family. And when mom's voice was silent, we missed it terribly. But you know, the amazing thing about her is she didn't stop teaching. Even though she couldn't talk, she taught us volumes as she dealt with this dreaded disease with all of its complications and pain and, and, and disabilities. She taught us volumes through her attitude, through her reactions about what Lasting faith is really all about. And, and she never lost hope. She never lost sight of this glorious inheritance that she knew was awaiting her when she left this world. My mother wasn't one of those who was eager to leave the world and because she wanted to be here with us. She loved her children. She loved my dad. She loved her grandchildren. But, but 
Even as much as she wanted to be with us, you could tell in her spirit there was a wonderful driving inspiration, a blessed hope that she knew was hers. And she knew that she would never be defeated, not by any disease and certainly not by sin. And she showed us how to be victorious even in the midst of harsh trials and and painful circumstances. You know, the Apostle Peter, as he's writing this letter to the early Christians in the first century who were going through times of trials, hardships, and persecution, he was writing to remind the brothers and sisters from the Word of God that sure, life can be unfair. Life can be painful. Life can be trying. But in the midst of that, as the people of God, as the children of God, we just need to remember that we have for ourselves a glorious heavenly inheritance that the Lord has given to us who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ that no person, no power, no authority, no circumstances, no disease, not even sin can separate us from. And as long as we keep our eyes focused on that, Peter helps his readers to see that even in the midst of harsh, hard, painful times, persecution even, we can express joy. That's the natural divine response of God's people. So as you look with me again, Peter, first of all, wants to remind the the readers of his letter, the Christians of that era, of the believer's eternal joy. And brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, we as children of God, we have access to this wonderful, eternal, and I emphasize eternal joy. To distinguish it from what the world would call its joy. Because you see, the world and the world system has a form of joy, but it's temporal. It's circumstantial. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Or for that matter, it can be here one minute and gone the next minute. And and it it depends upon your circumstances. and, And it preoccupies the minds of so many of the world, the unregenerate people of the world. But not so for the people of God. We have a joy that is not dependent upon our circumstances. It's not dependent upon how we feel physically or what people think of us. We have a wonderful joy that is given to us as the people of God that enables us, Peter says, to rejoice no matter what the circumstances may be. As we look back at verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us, in other words, made us born again, made us to be born again to a living hope. Not just a hope, but a hope that is alive, that is vibrant, that lasts forever through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because Jesus came out of that grave Three days after he was buried, after his crucifixion, ladies and gentlemen, you and I live with a blessed hope of knowing that we have a home in heaven where we'll be in the very presence of God forever. Peter said that's one of the great benefits of following Christ. But then he goes on to talk about in verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In my previous message, I talked about that wonderful inheritance. We are the children of God. The Bible tells us 
us that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All the spiritual blessings of heaven are ours. We didn't earn it. You never can earn it. We don't deserve it. But because of the amazing grace of God and the faith that he's given us to believe upon his son, Jesus Christ, we have this wonderful inheritance that Peter says, don't worry about it. Nobody can taint it. Nobody can rob it. Nobody can diminish it. It is guaranteed and reserved for you in heaven. But then he goes on in verse 5 and says, for us who have been recipients of this wonderful hope, living hope and this inheritance, he says, you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so I want you to see the connection between knowing this and the ability to rejoice no matter what your circumstances are. God's people are a people who rejoice. Joy ought to be the characterizing emotion of God's people no matter what our circumstances are. If I could take you back into the Psalms, you hold your place in 1 Peter. And let me just walk you through some passages that this is Old Testament. This is even before the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though it was prophesied, and though the Old Testament saints, as we'll see a little later, lived with a, a, a sense of hope. They lived with an awareness of the grace of God. And so as a result of that, knowing God as they did, to the best of their ability through the word that he had, he had revealed to them at that time, just listen to some passages like in Psalm 5. Psalm 511. The psalmist says, But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let these or those also who love your name be joyful in you. And then if you go on over to Psalm 9, and, and, and this is not an exhaustive example. This is just pulling a few out. In Psalm 9, uh, verse 1, the psalmist says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And then as we go on further in Psalm 33, again, you see the same theme of of joy being played out again in Psalm 33. I love to hear the rustle of Bible pages out there. That's great. In Psalm 33, look with me in verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Out of this we have the rejoicing that the Lord gives to us as his people. And then in Luke's gospel. Who can forget Jesus' wonderful parables, plural. As Jesus talked about the parable parables of lostness. There was a lost coin, or rather a lost sheep at first, and the shepherd left the 99 in the fold and went to find the the one. And when he found the one sheep that had strayed, the Bible says, what? The response was joy, rejoicing. You see, Jesus is weaving a theme of salvation, and he's wanting you to see that in response to salvation, there's nothing but joy. What about the lady that lost the coin? It was a special coin. She did her spring cleaning early. She moved everything out of the house. She began to sweep and just looked in every crack and crevice until lo and behold, she found that special coin. It was probably a part of her marital dowry related to her marriage. And you don't want to lose something like that. And when she found it, she just went to all of her friends and the neighbors and said, Oh, rejoice with me. The coin that was lost, I found. 
But you understand the crowning moment in the teaching of the Luke chapter 15 in the parable of the lostness was in what we call the parable of the prodigal son. The one son that, 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 that took his inheritance and went out and squandered it in the world uh, with worldly living and, and found himself as a Jew in a despicable position of having to eat with the pigs thinking to himself, my goodness, you know, he came to his senses and said, my goodness, even my dad's servants have it better than I do. I've got to get back home. And he went back and said, Father, basically, you know, I know I've sinned before you and before heaven and I don't even deserve to be your son. Just please put me on the payroll as one of your servants. And you know the response of the father. That son that was lost, separated from the family, from the community. He came back home. Which one of us? I don't care what your son or daughter does. Which one of us? Thinking maybe our child is lost out there in the world. Is, is lost to hope. And, and they come back. Wouldn't embrace them. And so Jesus teaches us in that parable. That yes joy goes with salvation. And for those of us who have received the precious gift of salvation. There should be rejoicing. I think one of the most exuberant times in the life of the church is when somebody comes down the aisle or or stands before the congregation or up in the baptistry as they're getting ready to be baptized and they said, I was lost in my sin. I was separated from God. I was hopeless in my my trek of life. There was no no semblance of, of, of hope for me and I realized that, you know, God made me aware that I'm a sinner and I was convicted of my sins by the Spirit of God and I turned my back on sin. I repented. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ not only as my Savior but the Lord and Master of my life and I have determined and I publicly proclaim that I want to follow Christ today. I want to be a child of the King. Hey, what church shouldn't erupt in exuberant celebration and joy? God help us when we sit on our hands and kind of think, well, that's nice. (laughs) Hey, listen, if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you and you do if you're a child of God, Then let me tell you, Paul makes it clear in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. We have the fruit of the Spirit in us. It's not something you manufacture, you don't conjure, you don't get yourself psyched up. Listen, when the Spirit of God dwells in us, He generates fruit. And one of the fruit of the Spirit of God in addition to love and peace is joy. Joy, that's why... The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, he could say to the, to the Christians at Thessalonia, you know, just as he would say to the grumpy Baptists today, you know, who don't want to smile, who don't want to be joyful. Yeah, Paul would say to them boldly because he knew he could. If they were true believers, he could say rejoice always. Not just when things are going well. Not just when everybody likes you. Listen, joy should flow from us as God's people, as a result of this wonderful inheritance and salvation. You think about the result of our guaranteed divine inheritance. Just try to wrap your mind around what is awaiting on you and me when we leave this world, as my mom has and so many of your relatives and friends that have gone on. Think about it. Think about the inheritance that waits for you and I in that dimension, that eternal dimension in the very presence of God. 
Think of the glory and the splendor in, the, in that series of messages, uh, messages I preached on heaven. I'm going to tell you, I, I was getting excited as I began to read the, the, the wonderful descriptions of, of what awaits the believer, the saint, when we leave this world and we enter the presence of God. Not only do we stand in the very presence of our Creator, not only do we look into the very face of the Savior who died on the cross, not only do we see the Shekinah glory of God, God around the throne of God and all the heavenly hosts, but listen, all the splendor the blessings, everything. It's like God will continue to open up one door like another door to another door. I don't think heaven ever gets born. I'm sure it doesn't because it's eternal and dynamic and it is a creation of God. When I go home to visit with my dad, one of his favorite TV programs is The Price is Right. And I have to confess, I kind of like it too. Uh, but you know how it works, you know. You have to, you, you, you have to win the first round to, to get to the next round, which is a little more challenging and trying to price things. And then you spin the big wheel, you know, and see if you can get the number closest to 100 so you can get into the grand uh, um, um, prize or showcase, they call it. And, you know, it's, just, it's like, you know, just seeing one thing after. I like to watch, listen to the crowd's reaction, you know, just, just when you thought this is the best possible prize you could get then you know of course you know the 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 uh person that's uh, facilitating the show he'll he'll say now behind this curtain you know, they roll it back I, I just believe for us as god's people who, who are in heaven god's gonna say oh you think this is really something here watch this Oof, you know i think we will be in a constant state of just awe and praise and that's listen that generates joy in the heart of god's people Knowing that this wonderful inheritance that God has given to us is kept by Him for eternity. It's the result of unshakable, authentic faith that we have in the midst of of fiery trials. Listen to what Peter says there. In this, in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Not just a little bit, but greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so as as we look at this, Peter is saying, yes, you will go through times of trials and hardships and painful situations, but just just like gold and other precious metals are put through a smelting process where they're subjected to very intense heat. So that if, if there are any impurities with that gold, if you will, the dross, if you will, it will separate in the smelting process and, and finally all the impurities are removed. In other, in other, in other words, Peter saying, for gold to be pure gold, it has to go through these fiery furnaces of smelting. And fiery furnaces of life, if I can use that expression, fiery trials of life. Folks, let me tell you something. You don't just stumble into those times unless it's a consequence of sin in your life. Unless you're being chastised by God, and certainly He will do that. And things can be painful. But let me tell you something. God also allows fiery trials to come into our lives on purpose not, not to prove something to God, because God knows all things. He knows the state of our faith. He knows the, the, the genuineness of our faith. 
So, so why would God allow us to go through these fiery trials? Peter says, it's for your benefit. God wants you to see. He wants you to learn how genuine and pure your faith is. And it takes a fiery trial sometimes to help us to see that in the midst of our professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got a lot of doubt and we've got questions and we've got uh, insecurities and we've got sin and we've got attachments. and, and, And He'll let us go through those trials. That's what James is talking about. The other apostle in his epistle, when James, as you well know, in chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you see, we benefit from these times. That's why it's important that when you find yourself in the crucible of of a hot, fiery trial, maybe it's a painful experience, or maybe it's a a relationship breakup, or maybe it's losing a job, or maybe it's financial crisis, or maybe it's a time of struggle. Whatever it may be, just know that if you are walking with the Lord, He's allowing you to go through that to show you something about your faith. Now, when we emerge and our faith is genuine, then Peter says, you've got a lot to celebrate there. He talks about the rewards that are ours. You see, the Holy Scriptures teach us as God's people, we are constantly to offer up to Him praise and honor. We, We know that. We just, talk, we, just, we just went through a time of praising God and reading responsively. We, we praise God in singing wonderful songs of praise to the Lord. But Peter says, he, he makes a statement here that, that some people may find somewhat puzzling. When he talked about how we are, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, If need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, and watch carefully, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here's the twist. We often associate praise, honor, and glory as to what we do to God. Yes, we should. First Chronicles 16.28 says, Ascribe to the Lord, all ye families of nations, ascribe to the Lord the glory due unto Him, and then to worship Him. And we know that the angels in, in, in Revelation in chapter 5 and that wonderful vision that, that, uh, that God gave to the Apostle uh, John there, you know, listen to, to how the, the, the people are, are responding to God in this great vision of, of revelation when they're talking about praise and honor. Listen, in verse 11, chapter 4 of Revelation, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So the scripture is, is, is full of examples of we are calls to us that we are to give praise and honor to God. But it's interesting here that we receive divine commendation. Our genuine faith. When you emerge from the trials that God allows to come into your life, then the Bible says, Paul, uh, Peter says here, that we are the recipients 
uh, he says, found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That praise comes from God. That honor comes from God. And that glory comes from God. God is commending His people for their faithfulness in their times of trial. Peter says, that's why you endure. That's why you rejoice. Because when your faith is genuine and you emerge from these fiery trials, he says, God will commend you. Listen, that's not, that's not brand new to the scriptural record. You may recall in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus is preaching that parable of the, loss, uh, of the talents. The parable of the talents. When Jesus, when, when the, 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 the two servants came back the one had five talents and invested it wisely. The one had two talents invested it wisely. You remember the response of the Lord when he told me, he said, well done, good and faithful servants. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So you see, Jesus says when we trust in the Lord and we walk with the Lord and we depend upon Him through these hard times, He says we will receive commendation from the Lord. This is also something that, that Paul touched on in, the, um, in the, his letter to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 2. Listen to verse 7. He says, Eternal life to those who, patient, who by patient continuance in doing good seeks, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Paul says, for those who look to the Lord and trust in the Lord, they will be commended by God <clears throat> with, with glory, honor, and of course eternal life. But then he, he repeats that in verse 10 as he goes on in, in chapter 2 of Romans. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who, wor who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And also in verse 29 of that same chapter, Paul again talks about he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise it is not from men, but from God. When we are committed to God and we faithfully endure through these trials and tribulations, we receive the, the, the commendation of the Lord in praise and honor and power as Peter is pointing out in glory as Peter is pointing out here. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, again, the Apostle Paul reminds us that when we endure through trials, God, God rewards us. If you'll look with me in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, this is a familiar passage because it talks about the rewards that are ours. And who doesn't want to, to talk about the rewards that will be ours when we get to heaven? In, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says in verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God which was given to me, he's speaking of himself, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Talking about your faith, talking about your relationship. Be careful about your relationship with God. Make sure it's not, in, not mingled with, with impurity, uh, not mingled with compromise or doubt. Make sure you're building on a solid foundation. Verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it. 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what it is, what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So Paul is talking about the introduction of fiery trials and that our works, our, our lives, our faith will be subjected to the fire of God's judgment. And out of that, again, if our faith is genuine, if our faith in Christ is authentic, then we receive the rewards that the Lord has in store for us. So true faith earns divine commendation. Just think God saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. When the Lord comes again, and He is coming, and, it, and, and Peter talks about this as he speaks in, in, in verse 7. He talks about how we, we will be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When is the revelation of Jesus Christ? It's when Christ appears again in His second coming. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he will come in power and in glory and he will bring judgment. And certainly you know that those who will be judged first will be his people. When we're there in his presence, he will at that time put us through the fires of judgment that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3. And from that we'll discover how pure our faith is in the Lord. But also true faith not only finds and receives divine commendation but Peter helps us to see here that true faith finds its ultimate culmination relationally in our relationship with Christ Peter commends these first century Christians people who are going through times of trial and and some persecution he commends them for their faith relationship with the Lord look at verse 8 talking to these early first century Christians, whom having not seen, you love. Talking about Jesus, when he comes again, it comes, this will be the first time they see him. Peter has seen him. Peter has experienced him. Peter had a personal relationship, eyeball to eyeball, with the Son of God. Many of these, if not all of these, because they were up in a, a part of the Roman Empire, that they probably would not have seen Jesus. Separated geographically from him. So, so Peter is commending them, the very ones that will receive honor and, and, and praise and glory from God. He says, whom having not seen, you haven't seen him, you love. Though you do not see him, yet believe. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now stop and think. I'm sure as Peter was given this this commendation and uh, to to this generation of believers, he said, "Wow, I'm impressed. Your love for the Lord, even when you're going through these fiery times of of, of ostracism and, and persecution and trials, he says, you you're rejoicing. Your joy, he says, inspires me. You've, you've never seen Jesus." You don't see Him today. And yet, look at your love for the Lord. You know, Peter could very well be writing that to all of us. Because none of us have seen Him in person. None of us. 
see him day to day, though we walk with him daily by his Holy Spirit. And Peter says, I commend you for such love that generates such joy. Now, I believe maybe in the back of Peter's mind, there may have been some residual regret. As he's flashed back through the scenes of his life to a few years earlier, when he, Simon Peter, the very one that Jesus called to be one of his original disciples to follow him, the very one that that was blessed by God to make that declaration of faith that Jesus commended him when he asked him, who do men say that I am? But he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter blurted out, "You're you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed be you, Peter, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven, Peter, you've just spoken the divine declaration. And he says, on that faith, I will build my church. Way to go, Peter. I don't know if they did high fives or whatever. So Peter's riding pretty high. Peter was included in Jesus as not only his original 12, but as you well know, consistently through the teachings in the Gospels, we know that Peter was one of a, a closest circle of three. Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus in very intimate and special moments. So, so you see, Peter's flashing back, and he's thinking about, wow, yeah, man, me and Jesus, we were tight. <laughs> but then he remembers that fateful night when Jesus was arrested, and there he was outside of the house of Caiaphas when Jesus was on trial and being mistreated. And, and you remember, he was confronted, even though Jesus had told him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And he says, oh, no, Lord, not me. The rest of them will. I'll die for you. Never! And three times Peter denied, even ever knowing him. Do you think maybe Peter was feeling, even as he's writing this letter to the church, churches there in, 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 in Asia Minor, to these Christians, you, you've never seen him. You don't even know what his face looks like. They didn't have Snapchat and all these things that we have. You can take your picture anywhere. I don't suggest that you do, but some people do. But anyway, that's pictures galore. I imagine those Roman, those, those Christians that Peter's writing to would love to have been able to see a picture of Jesus. They've never seen Him. Peter says, I saw Him day after day after day for three years. I saw Him. And yet I denied Him. Oh, what love! What faith! This genuine faith has enabled you to continue to believe in the Lord that you've never seen, that you don't see day to day. And he says, oh, how glorious is that. And look what he says in verse 9. Not only does he commend him for that, he says, receiving the end of... He says, listen, you are right now receiving the end. You say, how can you receive the end if you're still in the, in the race? It's like trying to run a marathon. You're supposed to get a trophy and you're just one mile down the road and it's 25 to go. Peter says, yeah, you're in the race of faith, but you, you've already received the end of your faith. You know what the end of your faith is? It's eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the blessings and the benefits of being saved, ladies and gentlemen. Do you realize, even though we're still in the race of life, even though we're still going through the trials and we have trials ahead of us, do you understand that you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to receive the end of your Faith, because he says the end of your faith is the salvation of your souls. 
You live every day as a child of God with the awareness that you have been given power over sin. You've been given power over the devil. They can't take you down. They can harass you. They can tempt you. But let me tell you something. That's what John said in in 1 John chapter 4 verse 4. He says, You are of God, little children. And you have overcome the world. For greater is He who lives in you than is He who lives in the world. So you see, we have already received the end of you. You and I live with the glorious indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The blood of Jesus Christ covers us and Satan cannot take control of us. He cannot destroy us. And ladies and gentlemen, even though we know that death comes our way, should the Lord tarry in His coming, Unlike the secular world out there, we don't have to live in fear of dying. That was another wonderful lesson that my mother taught us through those last weeks, through those last days, knowing that her body was given up. Knowing. And I was with her the last night of her life and helping to minister. We took turns in, in, in that morning. And I'm going to tell you something. I never saw one flinch of fear or anxiety. You talk about a perfect peace given through divine dying grace. Listen, she lived with that wonderful assurance that her salvation made the difference. Not even death could win. It could rob her of her physical body, but it could not end her life. And listen, that's what you and I have. That's what Peter is saying. You have the wonderful end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But let's move on. I want to finally, we talked about the believer's eternal joy and the believer's future and present reward. But let's also look at in these last verses, 10, 11, and 12, the believer's blessed and marvelous salvation. I hope you don't get tired of talking about salvation. I hope you don't get tired of talking to other people about salvation. If your salvation is genuine and real to you, it will be a great motivator for you to talk to other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you realize the wonderful benefits of what it means to be a child of God, and and the wonderful assurance that you live with, and the power that you have within you to live life victoriously, no matter what your circumstances are, why wouldn't you want to tell somebody else about it? Why wouldn't you want to invite somebody else to, to, to share in this blessed, wonderful joy that we have? So having given us his take on the subject of believers' salvation, the Apostle Peter does something interesting in these last verses. He said, now this salvation, this, this your salvation, do you realize just how absolutely amazing it is? He said, look, look at it. let's look at it from three different perspectives. The same salvation that we've been talking about, your salvation that you receive the rewards of, that generates such joy in you. He says, of this salvation, the prophets, talking about Old Testament saints, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Oh, listen, the Old Testament prophets understood. Though they didn't know everything, they understood that God was a gracious God. They understood that God was not going to leave mankind struggling through sin and without some salvation, without a remedy to the problem of sin. They understood. 
Listen, when we think about the Old Testament prophets like those that wrote the Psalms, in Psalm 22, the psalmist describes with, with uncanny description, with accuracy, the sufferings of Christ and, and the glory of Christ. As if he saw the thing unfold, and yet this is hundreds of years before Christ was even born. The prophets saw God's plan of salvation unfolding. They knew that God would send a Messiah. That great prophet that we've been looking at, Isaiah, in chapter 11. of Isaiah, he talked about the promised Messiah who was coming to the earth. And that the Messiah would establish his reign on the earth and be victorious over sin and establish his rule here. Listen, that same prophet wrote in, in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant of God. The same Messiah that would receive the glory and the honor and, and, and also be exalted as the king of all the earth. Would be the same Messiah that as a lamb of God would lay his life down and suffer. At the hands of sinful men. Oh listen, the prophets were speaking. They were speaking because the Spirit of Christ. Look at verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The Old Testament prophets knew that out there somewhere in the future, God had a wonderful, blessed Messiah who would not only come and establish His righteous reign on the earth and vindicate His people, but listen, God said through His Spirit to those prophets that this same Messiah would suffer and He would die. That's what Isaiah 53 describes. is how Jesus died and was so disfigured. Jesus even spoke of the prophets and, and their predictions of His ministry. You may recall in, in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4 when Jesus was launching his, early in His ministry in His own hometown of Nazareth, He stood up before the synagogue there and He quoted Isaiah 6, 1 and 2 about Himself. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus said, All this that was given to you by Isaiah the prophet about the coming Messiah, ta-da, you're looking at Him. That probably wasn't one of his best received messages. Because after that, folks got rowdy, they resented it, and they tried to run him out of town, try to kill him. But the fact is, it was true. Jesus said, what the prophet said, that's who I am. I have come to bring hope into the world. I've come to bring forgiveness of sin. I've come to set the captives free from the bondage and the chains of sin and death. So Jesus saw the value of what Peter describes when he says the prophets inquired and searched diligently. Listen, the prophets understood vaguely that God had a wonderful plan of redemption. That God, though a God of justice, was also a God of grace. By inspiration of God, they understood that God extended His, His divine grace to humanity. Noah. Noah was a prophet of sorts. He was a man of God. 
And Noah knew firsthand something about the mercy of God. Just when God was ready to bring judgment upon all the world, to destroy all the world, God extended His mercy by grace to Noah and his family. And they survived the flood. And humanity survived. Moses, the giver of the law. Another prophet of old. Probably one of the greatest in the Old Testament. But, But Moses, as he was given the law, Helping the people of Israel to understand that their God, Jehovah, was a holy God, a righteous God. And he had, he had perfect righteous standards. But do you know what? Moses, even in the midst of giving the law in Exodus 33, 9, this is what he said, God said to him, For I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. God says, I am a just God. I will bring judgment upon sin, but I am also a God of grace. And I give grace to those whom I choose to give grace. Now, that didn't go over too good for old Jonah. Now, he knew that God was a gracious God. He knew that God was a God of mercy. And so when he went to, you know, finally took him a while, he had to go via, you know, submarine, kind of, after he got swallowed by a big fish. And of course, you know, he and this fish then led, you know, I guess when you're in the belly of a fish in the bottom of the ocean, you kind of have a time to think about, kind of review your decisions and say, maybe I ought to rethink this thing. But anyway, he repented. And then he was regurgitated. Sorry, I know it's getting close to lunch. And then he went and he preached. And then there was a revival. And you would have thought, one of the biggest cities of, the, of that, that era, I mean a massive city of Ninevites, everybody, the king and everybody, down to the servants, repented of their sins. You would have thought Jonah would have been doing cartwheels down Main Street saying, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! But he's sitting up on the hillside pouting. I knew it, God. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. If I preached about your mercy, you know, or, or, or about your justice, and I warned these people, you're our God of mercy. And sure enough, here you are, extending grace to them. We don't have that problem, do we? We're happy to see people that are wicked sinners turn and come to Christ. But you know what? The same message that the prophets sought to describe is the same message that was preached with power by the apostles of the New Testament. The same salvation that was sought and inquired and studied and prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament was the same salvation message that was preached so powerfully by the New Testament Apostles. Apostle Paul said to the lost sinners, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. Listen, hot off of the day of Pentecost, Peter stood before the very murderous Sanhedrin, the scribes and the priests and the elders, and listen to what he said under the power of the Holy Spirit. He said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's no mistake in the minds of the New Testament apostles about this thing called salvation. And that's what Peter's reminding them. This salvation, Christians, that you have, what a precious 
commodity. What a precious gift it is from God. The prophets would have loved to have known what you know. The prophets of old would have given anything to have experienced what you have experienced to know what you know. And they could say the same thing about us. And of course, Jesus commissioned His disciples in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples. Share this salvation. Acts 1, 9. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the world. Take this message of the gospel. But, but, But finally, probably one of the most curious ones, but I think inspiring. As we look further there. In verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, talking about the Old Testament saints, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been re- reported to you through those who have preached the gospel, that's the New Testament apostles, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. But look at that last phrase. Isn't that interesting? Things which angels desire to look at. What do angels have to do with this message of salvation? Angels are created beings designed by God. They're they're sinless. The ones that are still in heaven. The fallen angels, of course, we know as demons. But but they, they have no need of grace. They have no need of salvation. Because it doesn't pertain to them. And yet Peter says, this same salvation. He says, the angels, they, they desire to they look at it. It, it is a, a curious thing. These angelic beings designed and created to give service to God and to praise the Lord, having no need of salvation, still they wonder and marvel. These great angels, in these eternal creatures that they would be in wonder at how God could be so loving so gracious that he would choose to direct his attention upon a rebellious group of human beings who has re- had rejected him rebelled against him and he would love them They saw the story unfolding from the beginning. They they saw when when Gabriel was dispatched to that young virgin Mary to say, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be the Son of God and He's going to be the Savior of the world. The angels are scratching their heads. To those human beings, do you see how wicked they are? Do you see how rebellious they are? How nasty they are to one another? Look how they talk about God. And, And the angels are in absolute Amazement. They, they look and they wonder. They want to know. They want to know. Well, let me just close by saying that not only does it generate that curiosity in the angels, but you know in Revelation, we talked about John's vision in Revelation in chapter 5. Do you, do you realize that, that the angels have a part in the celebration of our salvation? That's amazing. They, they get it. They understand. They know the nature of God and they understand the grace of God and they understand just how wicked and depraved we are. But, but, but listen to what John says in Revelation chapter 5 verse 6. And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, speaking of Christ, 
as though he had been slain, and he was, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of, of him, speaking of the Father, who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. This is, in other words, Jesus consummating salvation. Jesus, when he takes the title deed to the world, he's saying, I, I have done it. It is finished. I have paid the price to redeem lost humanity into a fellowship with God. When he reached out with his hand, ladies and gentlemen, the father saw the nail scar in his hand. And he took possession of, look at verse 9, and they, talking about the elders, which represents the believers, the church, that's us singing. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed to us or redeemed us, speaking of the church, the believers, to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. These, this is the church. We're singing in response to this glorious salvation because we're there. We're at the throne of God. We have received our glorified bodies. We are in the presence of the Lord. We are singing over this glorious salvation that the Lamb of God has purchased for us. And then, listen to what John says in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. They couldn't stand it. They couldn't sing the song of redemption because Christ didn't die for them. But all this singing by the saints about this salvation, they were just, oh, they're just bubbling up. You can just, they just erupted. And there's more of them than us. I'm convinced because listen to what he says. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands uh, around the throne. That's some, somebody calculated. That'd be about 100 million plus. Saying with a loud voice, and this is all of us, the angels joining with us. We're singing about our salvation. They're singing in response to our salvation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. How blessed are we today to have the benefit of this divinely inspired, the divinely inspired words of the prophets, the great powerful proclamations of the apostles of the New Testament and even the interest of the angels. How infinitely blessed are we to be the recipients of this glorious gift of God called salvation. How dare we see that, examine it, and just say, ho-hum, I'll get me to heaven. Paul says rejoice. And again I say rejoice. 